I am a swing for the fence guy. I do singles are nice, doubles are nice, but a home run is really cool. I'm Bobby Fabio, and welcome to another edition of Class Racing Today, December 21st, 2020. Now, normally you would hear in a very deep baritone voice, I'm Brian Anderson, right before I say I'm Bobby Fazio. However, my co-host is out lost in the Florida Everglades, getting driven around by a chauffeur, enjoying 80-degree heat, looking at palm trees, probably in a good positive mood. I'm looking at cold, depressing, gray, rainy skies with a Christmas wreath blocking what little light there is to come in through the window. However, (laughs) uh, welcome back. The year is almost over. December 21st, the year that would never end. I say it week in and week out. We have a special guest for you today for given that we are a class racing podcast and we do focus on stock and super stock. We have to take today's episode and focus on I mean, what's actually more important than stock and super stock, the future of our sport in general. So today I did bring on who I consider to be, I don't know, he's my favorite track owner, probably America's favorite track owner. He's the owner of Norwalk, Ohio's famed Summit Motorsports Park. Okay, Mr. Bill Bader Jr. Today's Jr. He could be the third, we don't know for sure, but today he's Bill (laughs) Bader Jr., (laughs) He took over Norwalk, Ohio's Summit Motorsports Park in 1998 um, from his father, uh, Bill Bader Sr. And well, we'll have Bill. We'll have Bill tell you the story. Bill, how did you come about? How did your family get Summit Motorsports uh, Park? Well, uh, first of all, good morning. Uh, I'm excited to uh, uh, be on your show. Thank you for the opportunity. I, I, I'm not sure that I'm. Uh, America's track operator. Um, I, I that's a little daunting, but thank you. Uh, I certainly do love this country. Um, so my father was uh, a iron worker. Uh, let me step back. My father went to medical school. It was it was his mother's desire for him to become a doctor. So dad graduated from St. Ed's, attended Dayton University. Uh, where he decided very quickly that he did not want to be a doctor. So he left Dayton University, uh, was always exceedingly mechanically inclined, mechanic, welder, fabricator, just extraordinary with his hands, uh, was an iron worker, was involved in a multitude of entrepreneurial uh, uh, ventures, some successful, some not so successful. And in the spring of 1974, uh, purchased the then Norwalk Dragway uh, from Vince Schubert, who was an area banker who built the track in 1963 uh, in hopes that it would be something that his son would take an interest in and, and gravitate toward. Uh, that never really uh, materialized. So the track was closed, and my father actually bought Norwalk Dragway, having never been to the facility, having never. <laughs> participated or attended in uh, a drag race. So 
Uh, my father was a round track racer, ran super modifieds, was very successful on the participant side, but he was uniquely armed uh, or uniquely um, prepared for the challenge at Norwalk Dragway. Uh, and maybe we can get into some of those, some of those reasons, because as a racer, as a participant, he dealt with all of the frustrating things that racers go through. Right. Um, and, and so he felt that this would be an opportunity for him to ensure that all the things that were frustrating for him, uh, all of those things would, all of those deliverables, um, he, he would take pride in the fact that he would always, uh, deliver those things. So, so bought it sight unseen, having never been to a drag race, uh, in the spring of 1974. And so it began. Wow. And so you're telling me there are challenges for owning a drag strip. And even in 1974 at the, at what I consider was probably the height of drag racing. And I got to think, you know, since your father got through those challenges, I got to think those challenges probably aren't as bad as the challenges that you drag strips are facing right now. I mean, just take a look at 2020. You even said yourself, you're not trying, I wasn't trying to make money this year. My goal is just to get to 2021. Sure. Um, this year has been terrible for drag strips. What, what can you say about this year for your drag strip in particular? Well, I think, so this would have been my, I started working with my dad in 1977 uh, I was 10 years old. Um, and you know, my father, my father's approach was to take his young children, uh, beat them into submission at a young age, um, pay them virtually nothing, um, work them, you know, uh, I, I remember a story, uh, we were in the, it was in, it was pouring, and, and so we didn't have rain gear. So we would cut holes in a, in a big, in our big garbage bags, slide them over our head. And, and that was our rain gear. And my father came by in a job truck. Uh, it was around lunchtime and threw a, a sack out the window and said, here, eat while you work. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, so that was kind of the bill senior um, uh, culture. Uh, you work and you work and 16, 18, 20 hour days. Um, so that's the environment that, that I grew up in. And, and from 1974 to the present, we've been through uh, recessions. We've been through energy crises. We've been through political challenges. We've been through um, crazy fuel prices. Uh, I, I guess I felt each year presents unique and different challenges. And, and I can't tell you how many times in any given race season, I'll say, wow, I, I never dreamed I'd be addressing that. Uh, one year at the Halloween classic, uh, the FEMA director came out and said, we believe a tornado is going to cross your property. Uh, the circumstances are ide ideal, warm front, cold front, blah, blah, blah. We, we had 1400 race teams on property that we had to evac. Wow. Um, so I've seen a lot, been through a lot, and really thought that I was pretty battle tested. And so each year is challenging. Each year presents um, extraordinary uh, circumstances and, and calls for all kinds of resiliency. But um, so I thought going in, I, I truly going into this year was in, 
exceedingly optimistic. Ticket sales were up and up double digits. Uh, sponsorship was up. I, I felt that this could be a record year uh, for uh, Summit Motorsports Park. Um, and, you know, the beginning of March, we were humming. And by the, what was it, the 13th, 14th, 15th, we were under a stay-at-home order. And so began the odyssey of 2020. Wow. Yeah, and I know you actually, when the lockdowns began, you released <laughs> a Facebook video on on your track website. It got 436,000 views. And in that video, you said that, you know, the Bader way was always to reinvest everything you guys had into the racetrack. That was your dad's philosophy. That was your philosophy. Okay, so you you reinvest in the racetrack. You obviously did not plan for a pandemic. Um, so, you know, you may not have had as much money stored away as you would have liked, but you spent money because you believed in the future and not a whole lot of tracks do that. So will you be able to bounce back in 2021? Um, absolutely. Uh, I was, you know, I started out in March and April, just absolutely defiant, angry, um, I was going to forcibly get that racetrack open, uh, no matter what. And, and, um, I, I, I needed to get the facility open. I wanted to get the facility open. I had, uh, 26 full-time people. We have 430 event staff. We have 8,000 different racers that race with us in a given year. We have a half a million visitors. Um, that's a lot of responsibility. We have a significant book of sponsor business. Um, and so I serve a lot of masters um, and we needed to get open. And in the beginning, I fought and fought and fought and fought to the point where I, I, I'm surprised I'm still married. If you want to know the truth, uh, my wife and I will be married for 31 years in February. And and um, I don't think she wanted anything to do with me for about 90 days. But um, we, we, we get to May and, uh, by, by Memorial day weekend, um, 83% of our revenue is gone for the year, uh, facility lease events, uh, events like the national event, um, the summit racing equipment and HRA nationals, the large events like the Kelly night under fire that has 40,000 people. It, 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 I, I just watched everything that we worked for um, go up in smoke, and I, you're right, I didn't build pandemic. I had, I have since 2000 and since November 1st of 2006 invested nearly 12 million dollars in my facility. Um, in the last three years alone, uh, a 1.6 million dollar surface, a half a million dollars in a lighting expansion. We purchased another 130 acres uh, about 16 months ago, and we built a, a new building uh, to, to help um, house equipment and help us on the facility side. Um, so I was very, I very aggressively uh, reinvested in my facility, um, and it, it, <laughs> uh, it, it, I definitely paid dearly for that. Um, my background is in accounting and corporate finance. And, um, 
you know, Grandma Bader, uh, how, how often do our grandparents tell us to put money away, save money for that rainy day? Um, and unfortunately, I, I found myself pretty compromised. And um, it was just a fact. I'm not embarrassed about it. I, I take a lot of pride in what we do. Um, and it, it just was a series of unfortunate events. And um, uh, but the Bader way is to fight. Uh, we are fighters. I, you know, some uh, run and some relish the battle. And I'm probably a guy who relishes a battle. Um, so we fight, we endure, we adapt, we overcome. And uh, I cannot wait uh, for April 10th of 2021. That's awesome. opening day, by the way. Right. <laughs> what race would that be? Uh, that would be our spring warm up. Okay. So large test and tune swap meet, um, kind of like a, uh, a spring homecoming. And, and, uh, so that's, that's our first event to kick off the 2021 season. Excellent. Um, when is the night under fire event going to be? Uh, the Kelly night under fire is Saturday, August 7th of 2021. Okay. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong. That is during your divisional event, right? Our, no, our, um, our schedule, the, what I did, uh, proact, I, I wanted to get a 2021 schedule out. I felt we needed to get a 2021 schedule out and with very little clarity being provided by, um, you know, government, uh, I had to make some decisions. So I backloaded our schedule, um, and, um, I, I, I took all the data I had, all the data points, looked at some uh, bell cows and, and said, okay, uh, here, here's what we're going to do. And so our divisional race is actually, the, the Budweiser Cavalcade of Stars is actually over July 4th weekend, the week following the Summit Racing Equipment NHRA Nationals. Oh, okay. So national event followed by divisional event. That yep. would be good, you know, for the travel aspect. People can leave their rigs there. Just speaking of divisional events, I race divisionals in division one. And basically every divisional I run, aside from, we'll say, Memorial Day weekend at Maple Grove, the stands are empty. The place is empty. There's not a whole lot of marketing that goes into it. There's not a whole lot of enticing spectators. Um, Saturday at the Maple Grove Divisional, they'll have free car loads after 3 o'clock, which always aggravated me because stock is, we run at 9 o'clock until 3 o'clock. So it's basically like they don't want any spectators to watch us. They do pack the house for the alcohol cars that night. And they would even have some fireworks afterwards. It's a great thing. But then Sunday, we were racing our eliminations in a ghost town again. Now, kind of like a new norm that we were just supposed to come to expect over the years. Kind of like, I don't know, when somebody says they're going to do something and somebody else replies with, how are you going to do that? Are you going to wave a magic wand and bring people back into racing? You have turned people away at a divisional. You've packed the house where... A, at a divisional, I, you can't even find standing room only. What's your secret? How do you do it? Well, first of all, it it, it is a process. Um, uh, I think 
So if you're an if you're an NHRA national event facility, um, I think there is a tendency to orphaned the Lucas Oil race um, because all eyes are on the national event, right? John Force is at the national event. Fox Sports is at the national event. That's the draw. Well, I will tell you something. In two thousand in two thousand and seven, for our inaugural year. Uh, I, I did not need to apply any genius to the marketing of the summit racing equipment and HRA nationals. All I needed to do was put tickets on sale. Um, people came, they came in droves. It was a hugely successful event. And, and it, it was, I don't want to say a monkey could have done it, but um, a monkey could have done it in 2007. Um to me, the challenge was to make something out of the cavalcade of stars because that was um, requiring skill. Uh, that was requiring attention. Um, and, and, and I think I think tracks have a tendency to take that event for what it is. It's a divisional race. Um, it's a backgate event. Uh, we don't take any risk, minimal staff, we get in, we get out and HRA does their thing. Um, and so if the track operator doesn't think it's a big deal, why the hell would anybody else think it's a big deal? Um, I took a different tact. I wanted to pack the house. I wanted to do something that, um, had not been done before. So I applied quite frankly, um, a lot of the same technology we used to apply uh, when we were the host facility of the uh, IHRA World Nationals. We would pack our facility for the IHRA World Nationals. We, we didn't have Fuel Funny Car. We didn't have John Force. But what we sold was an experience. And that experience consisted of 600 race cars. It consisted of um, uh, uh, alcohol, funny cars and dragsters, uh, top sportsman, top dragster, stock, super stock, comp, super comp, super gas, super street. And if I'm forgetting a category, I apologize. Um, we, we sprinkled in jets, we sprinkled in wheel standers. We put the exclamation point, uh, on the evening with fireworks and we sold an experience. And, you know, we were IHRA for 20, we were an IHRA facility for 26 years, maybe, um, and never really had uh, any megastar power. So what we needed to do was sell an experience. Um, and yeah, we had Dante Pastorini, if you remember, uh, the quarterback from the Houston Oilers. I mean, we would have some transient talent that would move in and out of the uh, uh, IHRA, but we never had any staples, any mainstays. So um, we sold an experience and that experience starts at the very first touch point when you turn off of Route 18 to enter our parking lot. Um, when you turn off that state route, you are now a guest in my house. And as such, you there are certain expectations and certain standards. And that really is the origin um, of each one of those touch points leading up to uh, from the time you arrive to the time you depart. And, and um, 
and you know a midway accessibility i would ask guys to sign autographs and they would look at me like really we get to sign autographs at a, at a divisional um some of them never I, I remember talking to some of the few uh some of the alcohol teams and i shared with them my vision of what we wanted to do and some of them just didn't believe it some of them thought i was crazy some of them just were completely disbelieving in the philosophy but um you know it worked and um, it's not rocket science. We're, we're, we're creating a value message. We want to be inviting for mom, dad, and the kids. And it starts with ease of access, uh, smiling faces, uh, welcoming uh, parkers and ticket sellers, a clean, well-groomed, manicured facility, um, a great food court, clean bathrooms. Um, I, I can't really, I, I can deliver the product, but I can't control the outcome. Uh, of of a round of stock or super stock or alcohol. But what I can do is I can dig and research and find some compelling stories. Um, and it, because they're, they're out there and they're in mass in the pit area, if you care to look for them and you get people to care about that. Um, and that's easy uh, because people, we as humans seek out feel-good stories. We love those things. We love the underdog. We love the comeback kid. We love the 80-year-old grandma, um, you know, banging through the gears in stock <laughs> eliminator. Um, so it, 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 we just entertain people. That's like a Dis the Disney World approach. You have the uh, beautiful facility, the smiling faces. You have all that going. You also have the Bader philosophy. Now you said uh, uh, it was either you or your father the complaining customer is your friend mm -hmm. now my dad there are a lot of complainers in drag racing i mean i i don't i would say it's dangerous for you to to actually state a quote like that because you could be opening the door you know or going down a road you don't want to go down um can you explain how that may or may not have been you know is that a successful way to approach things a absolutely it's a successful way um my father taught me at a young age when i move around my facility whether it's on an off day or in a or a day we're open um i am trained to look for what's wrong that's um one of my i think secrets to my success it's very easy the sun is shining the stands are packed, cars are running, you're making money, life is good. It's very easy to be fat, dumb, and happy at that point and, and become blind. But I guarantee you on that day, you've got 40,000 people in your park, the sun is shining, cars are running, people are cheering. I guarantee you there are plenty of things wrong that are taking place at your facility. Um, you've got to find those things. You've got to seek those things out. You've got to embrace those things. And, and unfortunately, that sometimes makes me a very unpopular guy with my management team because we can get finished with an event and everybody's on a high and, and I've got three pages of, of stuff that's wrong. Um, and, and so I've had to temper that over the years. But Summit Motorsports Park is 400 acres, and I can't be in 400 acres. But who can be in 400 acres? Our guests, racers, uh, people in the parking lots, people in the campgrounds, people in the bathrooms, people in food lines. And, and I want to know what's wrong. And, and I will tell you, I'm not always ultra accepting of hearing 
what's wrong? I'm human. And that's my baby. And nobody likes to have their children. Uh, nobody likes hearing bad things about their children. <laughs> but the reality of it is that our guests cover every square inch of that place. And um, there are, uh, they're my eyes, my ears. Um, and, and so when my father coined the phrase, the complaining customer is your friend, what he meant is, here's somebody who's coming to you, who's taken the time, taken the effort to say, hey, I just had this experience and I want you to know. And they want you to know because they want you to fix it. They, they, they want to continue to spend money in your facility. Um, I will tell you that uh, by contrast, let's say, um, let's say you've got 40,000 people, the sun is shining, cars are running, life is good, and, they're, and you're irritating 100 people a minute on your property and nobody says a word, they just don't come back. So next year you've got 36,000. The next year you have 30,000. The next year you have 28,000. So five years later, you're down 40 or 50% and you're sitting there in your office going, what the hell just happened? Um, so I, I, I and, and I'm not saying that it isn't difficult to hear that stuff, but what I'm saying is um, the complaining customer is your friend. They want you to fix it. They're, they, in effect, they're you're paying them nothing to critique and improve your business. Um, and unfortunately, that is a philosophy that um, not as many facilities as I would like, um, they just don't embrace that. And um, that's probably one of, not probably, it's one of the many reasons our sport underperforms. You could be right on that aspect. I do know that uh, racers tend to voice their complaints on forums or, or voice them maybe to everyone but the man in charge that needs to be mm -hmm. uh, have the, the complaints voiced to. I, I do think sometimes, you know, maybe NHRA, people complain about NHRA all the time. Maybe they just don't know. You know, you have to go to them and voice your concerns. And believe it or not, a couple of times I've voiced a few concerns. They, they've addressed me in a timely fashion, too, and, and told me what was up. And you learn things. Like, I don't – I've written uh, – Lex Dudas used to run Maple Grove, and I used to ask him all the time, you have Memorial Day weekend divisional. Like, you can capitalize on this so wonderfully. You have the Dutch Classic at the end of the year where you get 130 stock – you get so many cars on the premises – and four people in the stands. Like, can't you do something here to make this, you know, to make this work? And he did explain to me um, how divisionals work, who who pays to get in, who, who what the costs are. Can you elaborate to our listeners now? Like, if you have a divisional event, what what cost do you incur? What cost does NHRA incur? Um, can you share that with us? Okay, sure. Um so there are 44, I think, uh, Lucas Oil events across the country in seven divisions. And to my knowledge, every one of them works the same way. Uh, uh, and and I'll, I'll speak to Norwalk specifically. So the Budweiser Cavalcade of Stars is 100% my event. The income is mine. The expense is mine. The risk is mine. The reward is mine. Um, I pay NHRA 
a sanction fee uh, for the right to host the event. And if you have an ultra successful event, the sanction fee is pretty minuscule. Um, it's a base fee up to X amount of cars. And then it's a, um, and then it becomes variable at, I think 15, 10 or $15 a car for every additional car over the base. So truthfully, it's a pretty inexpensive event uh, for a track owner operator to host. Um, so all of the expenses, whether it's uh, uh, insurance, I pay the insurance, utilities, I pay the utilities, labor, I pay the labor. Now the NHRA for that sanction fee that they receive, they bring in the certification team, they bring in their division director, which in division three is William Tharp in your division, David Moan. They bring the NHRA safety safari. So if you're thinking that NHRA just gets a check and they put that in the bank, they have a lot of expenses that, that they incur to help offset that check that comes from Summit Motorsports Park. So that event truthfully can be as big or as small as I choose to make it. And we only get X amount of pulls, um, you know, so if you're in a casino and you only have 15 minutes and you're in a, uh, and you're playing a $5 slot that takes five coins, are you gonna drop one coin in at a time or are you gonna drop five coins in at a time? Um, I, I am a swing for the fence guy. I do, uh, singles are nice, doubles are nice, but a home run is really cool. So. <laughs> Um, I have a tendency to, I like the risk. I take the risk and I mean, I've lost 150 grand in a single night. Uh, when I kind of embrace a swing for the fence mentality um, and it served us very well. But that event is um, the host facilities event. Now, just uh, jumping back to the fee that you have to pay now, if uh, spectators, do you have to pay on any spectators or is that 100% yours? The the gate, um, the spectator gate is 100% the facilities. The car and driver fees are 100% the f facilities. The crew tickets are 100% facility. Okay. So it it's definitely beneficial for a track to really pack the house at a divisional. I, I just don't understand Absolutely. why they're not trying to do that. Well, there, well, listen, there's risk, right? There's risk involved. Um, uh, and there's work involved. Uh, and I think we sometimes are um, misguided in that we think that the only guy that can sell tickets is John Force. Um, and, and listen, a top fuel show, a fuel funny car show, you've got DSR cars, you've got Coletta cars, you've got Torrance cars, you've got, um, I, I mean, I love those guys. 
John Force to Dale Creasy Jr. and 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 everybody in between. I love those categories. I love those cars. Um, those cars are almost unaffordable uh, to book. And so, and John Force can't run at my racetrack every weekend. And after a while, people won't care. So you've got within every event, there are compelling elements that your viewing public um, will have interest in. So you've got to just take the time and identify those things. Some, you know, um, give them God or give them price. So what that means is um, in, in drag racing terminology, uh, either give them John Force or give them affordable family pricing. Uh, and on Memorial Day weekend or July 4th weekend, in my mind, um, you know, a carload special uh, or a uh, kids 12 and under free pit pass, free parking. Why not do a free camp over special? I, I, I think sometimes we have a problem with free. Okay. So um, I, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with creating a value message and putting, could I make more money if I were a little more um, prudent? Yeah, I probably could, but I want people leaving my facility feeling that they had, um, that there was exceeding value in coming to Summit Motorsports Park. People are not standing in line every spring to buy tickets to our facilities. What's the waiting list to become to buy tickets for the Green Bay Packers? Um, we don't have waiting lists. I'm on the waiting list to be a Green Bay Packers season ticket holder, by the way, and I'm still at 18 or 19,000, wherever the heck I am. Um, there are no waiting lists to come into our facilities. And so what we need to do, create compelling content, treat people really well, a, a, a value-oriented offering, and just entertain people and have fun. That's what they want. Indeed. Well, I, somebody just commented on Facebook that you should be running the NHRA. So <laughs> <laughs> we agree with that. Uh, can you speak to what's going on with Atlanta Dragway? We saw that they're up for sale. Uh, they're mm -hmm. owned by the NHRA. Mm -hmm. uh, we know Chicago is is all but finished, and ATCO is kind of on life support right now. Can you speak about those three tracks, starting with Atlanta? Um, Atlanta is owned by NHRA, of course. The National Hot Rod Association um, owns Indianapolis, Gainesville, um, Atlanta, and they operate a Pomona which is a lease structure with the Fairplex in, in, uh, in California. Um, these facilities are incredibly expensive to maintain. Um, I don't think people realize, well, listen, I'll share a number. I probably shouldn't, but my cost to operate my facility for a year is $5 million. That's what it costs me to operate my facility in any given race season. Um, and, and it's just incredibly, it's an extraordinary expense. Um, when you bring people into your facility, think about all of the, okay, so 
if I have a thousand people versus 20,000 people, what does 20,000 people mean? I think, I think people have a tendency to just look at the revenue. Okay. Well, 20,000 people means I need highway patrol. Okay. Uh, and there's five to $7,000 a day for highway patrol. Mm. Then you have, um, you need more bathroom facilities. You create more garbage. You create um, a, a greater security demand. You create, you need ushers in your grandstands. Um, I spend about 30 grand a year fire. These facilities are incredibly expensive and service companies that are facilities being sold because that usually marks the beginning of the end and each racetrack has a core group of racers and okay so here's an example we were closed in 2020 we have a incredibly supportive racer base we average about 500 cars on a saturday for an edelbrock super series race i i will tell you that a lot a lot of our racers parked I think there were other area racetracks that were waiting for this windfall and, and it didn't happen. And sadly, every time a facility closes that core group that, that is a core to Atlanta or a core to echo or a core to um, any other facility, when those facilities go away, those racers go away too. They don't migrate to another racetrack. Um, so I, in, in the case of Atlanta, I, NHRA's hope, is to, I think, sell that facility and reinvest that money into Gainesville, reinvest that money into Indianapolis. Um, and I, I don't think anybody can um, argue with, with that philosophy. Um, they have been incredibly taxed, incredibly challenged, and they're trying to generate revenue to reinvest in their other facilities. So I think that's what's going on in Atlanta. I think the hope would be that it would continue to be um, a drag racing facility. It is certainly an icon in the South, and that would be um, certainly everybody's hope. Um, did that answer uh, or clarify Atlanta? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Atlanta. And now Chicago, Chicago, which which many said was one of the nicest facilities in the country also. Yeah. and Chicago. Um, is unfortunate. Uh, I, it, it is a stadium. Um, and I don't really have any knowledge on what's really going on in Chicago. Um, other than the facility is going to be dormant and I, that's never a good thing. Um, especially when there's no immediate plans for the future. Um, so I, I really can't speak to Chicago other than I know I'm selling a lot of national event tickets to Chicago uh, fans that um, want to come to Norwalk for the Summit Racing Equipment and HRA Nationals. But every time a facility closes, it's it's another death blow to our sport. Um, ATCO, uh, you know, the Northeast, which is just incredibly densely populated with racers and with uh, fans. Um, I, you know, English town, uh, is, is sad though. I certainly understand why the family did what they did. They made a business decision. Um, and I think ATCO is, is probably in the midst of doing the same thing. So, 
Um, but at English Town closing, ATCO potentially closing, um, it, what's going to happen is the racer base is going to start to dry up in the Northeast and just not good for our sport. Yes, I'm hoping. Uh, I really will be d- devastated if ACO closes. I'm about mm-hmm. 45 minutes from ACO, you know, here in New Jersey. So that would be a, a death blow for me. Also, I'd be back at Maple Grove, which, you know, it has been my home track. I've been going there since I was an infant. You were called in to consult at Maple Grove. Mm-hmm. I and a bunch of other racers were extremely happy about that. Uh, can you speak on your experiences at Maple Grove a little bit? Um, first of all, I um, thoroughly enjoyed my time at Maple Grove. I, I made a lot of friends. Um, I will be forever indebted to Mike Lewis uh, for uh, giving me that opportunity. Um, what a, just an extraordinary potential that facility has. It, it sits, um, I mean, 60 miles from Philly, which is the sixth largest DMA um, New York, New Jersey, Baltimore, Washington. Uh, you draw you, you draw a 300 mile uh, radius around uh, Moton, Pennsylvania, and there's 69 million people. Um, an incredibly dense, densely popular, an incredibly dense population, um, and I, it, it for the right person uh, who who has the energy and the financial wherewithal to come in, um, you know, the facility is for sale. And I know they've had lots of interest. I don't know what has translated or not translated in the way of a sale, but it, it the facility just has incredible potential and passionate, passionate racers. Um, <clears throat> you know, racers in the Northeast, um, talk differently than racers in the Midwest. Uh, and it took me a while to get used to. I, my first night at Maple Grove, uh, our first uh, bracket race, and it, it, it was in the spring and it was cold and, and you know, uh, people were uh, getting nervous. Um, and I, I, I've run the Halloween Classic in five degree temperatures. So I understand cold, I understand, um, do point. I understand um, all of those things. And, and the best thing you can do for a cold track is keep activity on it. Keep the groove wide. Don't let it narrow. Um, and, and you know, you just don't pour glue on a cold racetrack because it doesn't work. And uh, even though you can be stuck to the surface, the, the layer below the surface is still wet in, because it didn't dry. And that's why to your foot, a track seems tacky, but you put a race car on it, it's guard wall to guard wall. So I understood a lot of the challenges and, and I had racers from the Northeast that were like up to my nose um, and arms flailing. And, and I thought they were angry. And, uh, and I said, listen, calm down. He said, I'm calm. I'm calm. This is just how we talk in the Northeast. And uh, <laughs> so uh but I, I, I made lots of friends there. I loved my time there. I, I miss, uh, truthfully, uh, I miss Maple Grove. I miss, it was an incredible challenge. And um, that facility just has incredible potential. Well, it sounded like a, a team of three gentlemen were looking to purchase it at the beginning of this year. I don't know if the deal fell through. I don't know if the pandemic kind of just 
made it pointless to make such a purchase. I mean, there was no, there's no point if you if you know the state's going to be locked down, then why would you sink a whole bunch of money into a racetrack that's already a, a gamble to begin with, even in a, a good economy? Um, sure. They had some big plans though. They were talking about. I mean, I was hearing a water park, a hotel, a driving course, um, you know, world-class mm-hmm. facility, which would be phenomenal. That's a step, yep. you know, in the in the positive direction as opposed to usually what we hear in the negative direction. So well, I, 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 <laughs> I, I want to make one comment. Those capital expenditures um, are wonderful, and, and those are the things that certainly get your fan base and your market excited the challenge that we have, and and I think I, I I'll broach this tenuous subject because I think people have a tendency to look around. Night under fire. Uh, two years ago, I was down on the track for the outro where we bring all the stars back up the track. We invite fans out and they get autographs and get pictures. And I I had a fan come up and said, wow, there must have been 100,000 people at your racetrack. Well, n- no. Um, and, and I said, yeah, there were a lot of people here tonight because I didn't want to deflate his bubble. But he overestimated by 60,000 people at $42 a, a ticket. Um, that's $2.5 million in overstated uh, revenue. Um the, the the cost to run these facilities is incredibly high. The maintenance of these facilities. Um, and, and so I think by nature, people have a tendency to overstate income and they understate expense. So um, these, th- th- these businesses are not incredibly profitable. We hope they are one day. Uh, we don't enjoy TV revenue uh, like the stick and ball sports do. Um, we we have an incredible uh, book of sponsor business and incredibly passionate uh, sponsors. Um, but we don't command the dollars that, I mean, there were years where I had more people at my racetrack um, than attended two preseason and eight regular season Browns games. Um and yet Budweiser will pay half a million dollars for a sign on the scoreboard. And I can't, I can't get 10% of that or 5% of that or 1% of that. Um, so we, we provide world-class events and we provide world-class entertainment. We have major league expenses and minor league revenues. And um, we've got to figure out as an industry a way to do that. That's not your problem. That's my problem. But I, I, I think when you start looking at people that want to throw all this money at a venue, I think you need to evaluate how are you going to get your money back out? You know, now, if you're a billionaire, it doesn't matter. It's a labor of love. Um, but, but, um, you know, the, the accountant in me says at the end of the day, boy, how does this translate? And, um, uh, the financials don't look that great, you know? So, it, it, so at Norwalk, we invested as we could afford to invest. Um, you know, I, gosh, I 
I have a lot of work I'd like to do at my facility. Um, even coming off a pandemic, um, there are millions and millions I would love to reinvest in my facility, but I'm going to do it as I can afford to do it or as it makes sense to do it. So. See, I have a question on that. Sorry if uh, service bills catch you guys. You're killing it, Bobby, by the way. What uh, for a track that's maybe been lacking on maintenance and struggling a little bit on revenue, what do you think the most important aspect for a track owner? Like if you're going to invest into a track to help build it back, what do you think is the number one thing to work on first? Um, wow, that's a uh, interesting question. My, my reaction is as follows. I, I would look at what built Summit Motorsports Park and, and, and what built our facility was the sportsman racer. Um, a strong back gate will drive a strong front gate. So um, I would say um, a hook and racetrack, a reliable timing system. Um, I think racers need to know that when they come through the gate of any given racetrack, that they can only beat themselves. They can't get beat because they spun. They can't get beat because there's a difference between the right lane and the left lane, or they question their ET slip. So uh, a, a hook and racetrack and a reliable timing system. Um, and then I think every facility owner and, and their team should play the role of customer. I think on any given event, I think a track owner ought to come through the gate. I think he ought to pay to get in. I think he ought to use the bathrooms that his guests use. I think he ought to stand in the same lines that his guests do. I think he ought to sit in the grandstands and listen to the quality of the sound system. Uh, I think he ought to sit on the same wooden planks that are either rock solid or about to break. Um, I think he should park in the same parking lot. Um, and, and I think that would be a pretty eye-opening experience. I, I, I think we need to look at the guest's experience. And, and oftentimes it does not cost a lot of money. Um, this is not the first time we've been flat broke, okay? So um, it doesn't cost a lot of money to mow your grass, weed eat, hang your fence straight, put a few extra lights up, um, and it costs nothing to be nice. Um, and are your, are your, when, when you arrive at track X, are you being greeted by a warm, loving, friendly person? Or do you pull up and um, does that first touch point, what is that interaction like? Um, so I, I, I think your staples are, um, uh, reliable timing system, hooking racetrack, um, and, and then you evaluate everything outside the rails. And, and you take a real hard look at all of those touch points and how are your guests being treated? How are they being welcomed? Do we, are we thankful that they're there or are they an inconvenience? Um, are they met with a warm, smiling face or are they met with indifference? Um, do your bathrooms, are, are they a nice experience or are they filthy? Um, is your food decent or is it garbage? Um, those are the things in my mind. I think it's time to, to take a stroll around your facility, look at it through the eyes of a guest. 
Are you looking to expand to the Dakotas? <laughs> I'm just looking to get open next year. So uh, <laughs> I, I have very, very uh, manageable expectations for 2021. I have another question on the, the fees and bringing the race, like the divisionals and stuff. What part as a track owner do you have with tech? Like, do you have to supply tech people? Is that an NHRA provided thing? Can you request them? What's that look like? Um, for a Lucas Oil race, NHRA brings their certification team. So they will manage tech for all of those lucas oil categories uh for any given event so more or less you're providing you're paying for them to come in and handle all that they're just not doing much teardown they're basically it's a cost savings on their side more than likely uh, on on teardown correct you know um i don't know you know we've hosted the budweiser cavalcade of stars since 2007 I have no knowledge that we've ever done a teardown, um, and I would because, as far as I'm concerned, even though tech is NHRA's responsibility, those people paid me, and they're my guest. So if our racers were having problems in tech or were being were met with indifference at tech. I would darn well want to know about it because I would take that to our division director and say, "Hey." You know, um, and, and I'm not saying turn your back on safety. I'm not saying, um, but but let's employ a little common sense. Uh, I, I'm a common sense guy. And, you know, I've got Summit in Talmadge about an hour and 10 minutes away. We've run to get parts for people. Um, Summit has made deliveries to the racetrack. So if, if, if it's a situation that can be resolved, um, by God, let's find a way to get them on the racetrack. It's kind of too as far as you know, in stock, super stock, as far as teardowns and making sure that everybody has the legitimate combination, or you know, they're not they're not cheating or running illegal components on their on their combos, stuff like that. I'm wondering, is that something as a track owner that you can push NHRA to maybe do more inspections on performance based inspections? And I mean, how um, do we fix some of that? Well, um, I need to first understand that there's a problem. Uh, we've got in Division Three, uh, we have meetings scheduled. They're going to be virtual meetings, uh, unfortunately, this year. Uh, I didn't even know what Zoom was, and now I'm on it constantly. But we have uh, Division Three meetings January 15th and 16th. They're virtual meetings. But those are the things that if the track operators in each given division know about, we can certainly take those to those meetings and present that. That particular concern is not one that I have been made aware of. But um, if it's a problem, again, the complaining customer is your friend. I need to know. And, and I had no prior knowledge that that was a problem, uh, Brian, until you just brought it up. Planning customer you is your friend, but it's not usually NHRA's friend. See, we pay <laughs> a comp for a competition <laughs> number. We pay for a membership. Uh, we pay $330 to run a national event, $200 to run a Division One event. I don't know what it is in the other areas. So we kind of, you know, we expected 
I hate to use the word entitled, but I feel like we are entitled to a fair competitive uh, playground. And tech inspection was a huge part of that for many, many years. And it's, it's, it's all but, you know, it's kind of disappeared now. And that's just something that we're concerned about as stock and super stock racers. And there's a lot of people concerned about that. Sure. So do you feel that there is a potential cheating problem going on within the categories? There's uh I don't know. There, I'm sure there is, you know, it's just, there's no real basis. So in stock super stock, you know, obviously with the way it's monitored by performance, there's no real checks and balances. You could run, you know, your, there's combos probably getting hit with horsepower that might not necessarily be legal, legit, legit stock or super stock legal combinations. And that's, there's people that run, I like I run primarily association races just because my nearest divisional race is three and a half hours to Brainerd or seven hours to Earlville. But we have a really good association where we can race probably 12 races a year for pretty good money. But I think they're even looking in to start to implement some, some teching. There was, there's been a few instances where people have been checked at a, say a divisional or a national event that didn't test out that have been racing these other ones. There's also a lot of racers that won't run any place where there might be teardown. And I just, I feel that if there was more, if there was more attack and chance of teardown, you're going to legitimize all the combinations inherently. Well, I made a note and I will certainly bring that to the attention of uh, my DD, William Tharp, uh, and, and get that as an agenda item uh, for our January meetings. And I would encourage, uh, and, and, and maybe, I, I worked very closely with Dave Moan for my year at Maple Grove. Um, he's a great guy. Uh, I have nothing but incredible respect for Dave Moan. Of course, my division director was Jay Hollinger. Uh, and, and Jay, I didn't have a division director until I went to NHRA. So Jay became a trusted friend, a confidant, a, a father-like figure to me. Um, so I think the guys in the field, first of all, I don't think NHRA is necessarily the evil empire that sometimes they're portrayed to be. Um, I think they have a business to run. I think they have lots of masters that they serve. Um, and if we have issues, I think we have an obligation as I encourage my guests to voice their concerns to me, I feel an obligation to voice my concerns to NHRA. Um, and, and they have an obligation to respond to those things. So, and, and I think oftentimes they do. So, uh, I, I will certainly bring that to my division director and, and, and so maybe you go to a track, um, a, a prominent track in your division where you have a rapport where maybe you can broach that and, and let the tracks bring that to those divisional meetings, maybe that would be a strategy that might improve that situation. You see, uh, what do you see with the incoming administration that may be pushing more greener, uh, eco-friendly type policies coming? Do you see that? How as racers and track owners and managers, do we combat some of that? Um, you, you know, um, uh, Robert asked me to not get political. <laughs> uh, 
you can so, get it a little political. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, well, unfortunately, I'm I, I'm either political or I'm not. But I'm well, on on top of the to fact that this. on top on top of the green policies that we know are are coming, um, just the fact that government, local, federal, state, they've been out of touch with small businesses all year. So you have uh, well, a green agenda coming, and the fact that they really don't care about you. So. Well, I, I think, first of all, clearly motorsports was at the back of the bus in 2020. Um, other industries positioned themselves to move to the front of the bus. We were at the back. Hell, we weren't even on the bus. Um, so that's a problem. I am working with the United States Motorsports Association, um, uh, and we are working on – they have developed in the state of Pennsylvania a Pennsylvania – uh, motorsports caucus. Um, and they are having tremendous success. Uh, 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 State Rep Maloney, I think, is the chair of that caucus. Um, and we are looking at initiating an Ohio motorsports caucus using the Pennsylvania model as kind of the template. And hopefully this will move across the country. Um, during this pandemic, I spoke with racetracks who did not know who their county commissioner was, who their state rep was, who their state senator was, and, and quite frankly, shame on them. Um, these tracks have an obligation to understand who the influence, influential politicians are in their part of the state because we, you're right. We deal with with uh, noise. We deal with EPA. We deal with emissions, um, and we've got to be poised to combat that. And we have an obligation to know who our state rep is, know who our state senator is, know who our county commissioners are, um, and and um, I, I and that's going to be the message we created a, uh, as an offshoot. Uh, of the United States Motorsports Association, we created the Drag Racing Leadership Team, where tracks, the best and the brightest from drag strips all over the country have come together. And, and our, we are tasked with trying to create communication, guidance, protocols, direction, um, support for racetracks across the country. Um, there was never a system in place for that. There was never a vehicle for that. Um, we're going to have a meeting in Columbus in late January to start to put together um, this Ohio Motorsports Caucus. So we have a voice in state government. So God forbid, should this ever happen again, or as these other initiatives come down the pike, um, we're better positioned to deal with them. But, but let me say this. We love big cars. We love performance. Um, and so as much as the green initiative and the electric car and all of that stuff, um, I'm telling you, we as a culture will never accept that. And I, I think former President Barack Obama was just chastising Americans, I don't know, about a month ago for still driving big cars and not buying electric cars. Well, I want a big car. I drive a truck, a Ford truck. And, and, um, and I want to drive a big vehicle and I, and I want a V8 and I want it to burn gasoline. Um, <laughs> and if they want to sprinkle some methanol in it, so be it. Um, 
but quite frankly, I don't know that I buy into all of this propaganda um, that that is that's an agenda, oftentimes not based in fact, but rather based in desire or opinion or uh, you know somebody's wish list. But I, I think at the end of the day, I, I think we as the American people have a right to we decide, you know. So um, I, I I think. So a couple of things. We have a we have a number. It's eleven forty three. Are we okay time wise? Yes. Okay. Um, uh, we have a number. So our sport, right? Uh, we have. Uh, I'm making some notes here. We have the Green Initiative. Okay. Um, we have um, all kinds of different challenges. We have a graying fan base. Um, that's a problem, right? We have, uh, I, I shared with you, Robert, 48% of the kids born in this country are born to a single family. So dad's not even around or even a consideration when it comes to uh, serving as an ambassador to take mom and the kids to a racetrack. Um, so we've got the green initiative. We've got a green fan base. We've got half the kids in this country being born to a single parent. Um, we've got track owners uh who are indifferent right um and and so in my mind um i'm going to a control what i can control first um so the green initiative um i don't know is that more important than a graying fan base but before our country becomes green all of our fans may be dead um the fact that half the kids in this country are born to a single parent happening at their facilities. Um, we, <laughs> we have an extraordinary mountain to climb and, and the green initiative is just another thing on my list and, 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 and collectively in our industries list. And, and I think we need to have a voice in state government which ultimately translates to a voice in Washington. We don't even have a voice. We don't even know who the hell to call. So um, hopefully the drag racing leadership team, hopefully the U.S. Motorsports Association, we can do some good work uh, in the next couple of years and and um, at least have a seat on the bus, so to speak. Well, you, you did mention to me yesterday that the spectators at a race 80 i think you said 86 percent 86 percent 86 percent of race fans have a hobby car mm -hmm. which would not make that administration incoming administration too happy to hear because most of those hobby cars are probably like you said v8 gas guzzling you know big cars performance cars sure right that's that's the demographic that you are trying to i would say age 18 to age 35 is the demographic you're trying to go for, which was why Army was such a great, you know, uh, a drag race was a great marketing tool for them because that you you had your pick of you know of a multitude of uh, young men to go serve. But with this, like you posed about the, the fatherless family, is it is this a dying effort? Is it still possible to save what we do? Oh God, I hope so. Um, <laughs> I've committed 43 years to it. And, uh, you know, I have, uh, my oldest son, Evan, 
uh, just celebrated his birthday yesterday. He's 27, and, and he was just promoted to the role of uh, our track manager. Uh, I have a younger son who right now works in, in corporate America that may one day uh, move over to, to um, uh, motorsports. Um, I, I want to continue to grow and invest. Um, there's a plaque at our racetrack, and it says, if the world were to end tomorrow, I will still plant my apple tree today. Um, so I, I think we continue to do our work. We continue to fight. We continue to struggle. Um, our, our sport requires determination and passion and fight. Um, and I think there's still plenty of that. I, I think what happens is though, when you have a company come along who offers you a stupid amount of, I mean, if somebody were to come up to me right now and say, Hey, I'd like you to write, I'd like to write you a check for $50 million to buy your facility. Uh, that's tough. Um, and I'm not saying I would accept it. And I'm not saying, listen, nobody has offered me a dime for my facility. So um, uh, we're not going anywhere. And it's a family business and it's a, a legacy business and it's a multi-generational business. And I take a lot of damn pride in what we do. And I think a lot of track owners do. So we just got to be better. Um, I, I don't think that this is a dying uh, fruitless effort. Um, I, I think there's, I think we have hands down one of the most exciting, uh, products in all of sports entertainment. Um, you want to know, in my opinion, which sport has done the best job of navigating the pandemic, uh, WWE, um, has done an extraordinary job. They created their Thunderdome. They put thousands of monitors and put thousands and thousands of faces um, and and identified uh, you know what they what identified their challenges and and I think came shining through. Um, I think sports this is a recreation, this is a hobby, this is a labor of love. you know the the love of the automobile is inherent in many many Americans. so I, I don't think we're wasting our time. I think, if we're going to succeed, we have to do better um, in all of these categories and either and ones I haven't listed. Um, and and I think we I think we can achieve our goals. We just have to do better. No, I hear you. And I just me being a math tutor teacher. I have students that are 16, 17 years old, and they don't have a driver's license. When I turned mm -hmm. 16 back in 1999, I couldn't wait to get my driver's license. I'm sure you were the same way. Yep. Do you think that's you know, another contributing factor? Kids are just so connected to their friends these days. They don't need a driver's license anymore like we did. No, uh, that, that driver's license represented freedom, autonomy. Um, that was our key to the world. The, the um, Unfortunately, kids today can never get out of bed and stay connected uh, through their mobile device, through all the social media platforms, through Xbox, through PlayStation. Um, unfortunately, technology made the world small um, and, and easily accessible. Um, and those are clearly uh, challenges, but everything is cyclical. Um, fashion cycles, um, values, um, everything about what we do, every, I mean, life, lifestyles are, are cyclical. Um, and, and I think our sport will have a 10, I, I think we will 
come back around. I, I, I think we will realize all of the damage that social media, the best thing I ever did was unplug from Facebook in April or May, whenever it was. And, and I, I'm a happier guy. Um, and so I think what will happen is we will eventually realize that maybe all of this isn't good. And then there will be initiatives place to get kids back outside. Look at the NFL. They have their play 60 um, uh, messaging. So I, I, I think it'll come back around, um, but it's not going to matter if we don't do our jobs well, so to speak. But clearly um, the cell, the smartphone and all of the social media platforms um, the car isn't as meaningful because you don't need to leave your driveway to, to go see a friend. <laughs> just, it's just funny to see. It's just so different yep. from, and I'm not, I'm only 37. So this isn't that long ago for me. Now I do, I did want to ask you about uh, big uh, dollar bracket races, races that are competing with NHRA. And so did uh, Jim Norris, who's on Facebook also asked, do you see the big dollar bracket races you know, hurting NHRA. On top of that, Tyler Bohannon's throwing a stock super stock race for $25,000 to win uh, next Easter weekend at uh, Gateway, um, St. Louis racetrack. Uh, who else? Bo Butner, Jason Line, and Dave Connolly are throwing a $50,000. I think it's $20,000 to win Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then an additional $50,000 top 64 stock and super stock only race. These big money races are popping up all over. Is this going to get an HRA to wake up and compete, or does it not matter? Well, um, I, I guess, let me say this. Big picture those big money races um, cannot self-sustain. I think they're novelties. I, I look at all, what do we have? Three or $4 million races this year. Um, I think what will happen is over time, we'll see these races kind of come and go. I think those races though, in the short term are pulling people out of NHRA's pit area and they're pulling racers out of each one of our pit areas. Um, and, and so those things are problematic, but the reality of it is that how many people win that money? One, two, four, six, eight. Um, I, I and, and I want to focus on mom, dad, and the kids, and I want racers who want to be in my pit area, who create a fun family oriented atmosphere. And, 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 and listen, we have some of the finest racers in the country. And what happens is they, you know, they use Summit Motorsports Park as their proving grounds, and then they go abroad. And, um, and we've had a number of them. Uh, Matt Dattis uh, cut his teeth at Norwalk, and he's having incredible success um, on the big money circuit. And so, and he's just one uh, of, 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 of many. Um, Randy Shire, Chris Bear. Uh, are, are two other ones. So um, they're pulling cars out of all of our pit areas to go race these big money races. And, and here's the problem at NHRA. So let's, let's, let's talk about Norwalk uh, for the Summit Racing Equipment NHRA Nationals. You arrive on Monday, okay, to stack. 
you sit there on Tuesday, you get credentialed and you park on Wednesday. You have yet to make a run in your car, but you've been there three days. Thursday, you're going to get how many runs? Two? Okay. And um, uh, Robert, how quick is your car? Uh, 1040s. Okay. 125 miles an hour. Okay. So you're going to spend 21 seconds in your car on Thursday. How many, how many runs do you make on Friday? At a national, um, maybe one to two rounds. Yeah. Okay. So 10 seconds. And then on Saturday, let's say you go out first round, 10 seconds. So you, and you leave on Sunday or maybe Saturday. So you have spent seven days and you have spent about 41 seconds driving your car in seven days. Now, if I said to you, hey, Bob, why don't you and I go on a camping trip or a fishing trip? We're going to be gone for five days, but you can only fish for 41 seconds. <laughs> right? All right. It's a good point. Right. So, hey, but it's only $700. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but look at that. Seven days, 41 seconds. And that's the case for half the people because half lose first round. So now let's compare that to a big money race where you're on the track on Thursday and you're going to make one or two hits plus first round, plus you can buy back. You're at a new race on Friday, new race on Saturday, new race on Sunday. So, so you can go to an NHRA national event and half the population spends 40 seconds and God help you if you're an eight second car, because that 41 seconds just went down. <laughs> um, versus a reset each day, either for a three or a four day big money race with time trials, with round one and buybacks. Um, it's a problem. You hit the nail on the so, head because you hit the nail on the head. I took my family to my only division I went to in Brainerd. We sat there for three days, like it's nine and 13. You know, my kids are getting older, but it's hard for them just to sit there. Where yep. you go to the, the association races, it's at least, you know, a test day on Friday, you run Saturday, you run Sunday. Like, it's just yep. more efficient. Yep. I yep. think. So, go ahead. There, there's something to be said, too. Like, some track owners can just run you through a lot faster. I mean, I don't know if we're trying to sell hot dogs or what, but when you make a rod and nobody's <laughs> going down the track for 45 minutes, who would want to sit there and watch that? Right. Um, downtime is the death of our sport. And we time our runs. Um, we have targets. We want to run a pair of super pro cars every 50 seconds. We want to run a pair of pro cars every uh, 43 seconds. We want to run a pair of sportsman cars every 38 seconds. Um, and so I would love to initiate a, a, a shot clock methodology in our sport where once the second car, if you got two cars staged, the second car's tree turns green, a shot clock starts, and the next pair of cars should be staged in X amount of time. Um, every other sport has a game clock, and yet we have human rain delays ad nauseum in our sport. Um, burn across the line, back up, clean out the motor. I want to stage last. I want to roll through the stage beam, stop at the pre-stage beam, look over, adjust my belts, do whatever it is I want to do. And, and so you're running a pair of cars. Now you're approaching 60 to 70 seconds. 
and people have a shortening attention span, we have got to move. We've got to be safe. I'm not at all suggesting we compromise safety, but we have got to move. And and if you can average 40 to 45 to 50 seconds a pair, um, time between rounds, cool down time. Um, we, we, the downtime in our sport is insane. And it's a problem because every minute that passes with nothing going down the track, it's time wasted where somebody could have gone down the racetrack. So um, that's a product problem. Cleanups. We've got to be more efficient with cleanups. We've got to have the proper equipment. We've got to move with purpose as opposed to a guy plopping his butt down on the guard wall smoking a cigarette. And I see that all the time. Um, Walking to the scene of an oil down. Um, for God's sakes, move with purpose. And, and because what does that say to the people in the stands who bought a ticket, they're sitting on hot aluminum, it's 95 degrees, and we're lollygagging around, taking our good old time. That is a horrible message to the fans in the stands. Um, And I don't care if there's one fan or 40,000 fans, that is our stage our that racetrack is our stage and we've got to move with purpose and that is a huge hot button of mine if you want to see me uh, go from zero to orbit um walk not run on that racetrack <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm just kind of blown away i'm coming to your track like this is probably one of the most interesting guests we've had we've had some doozies on already like it's just amazing to see that there's people like you out there are you open to helping? I mean, is it somebody where if I'm a, if I'm a track owner right now and I want to get better, there's things I want to change. Are you willing to talk to that person? Absolutely. I get calls all the time. I just got a call from a gentleman. I want to say that was in North Dakota that they want to start a new racetrack. They've got the funding. Um, and he wanted to talk about track width and he wanted to talk about shutdown length. And I spent, 30 or 40 minutes with them on the phone. I I do have a consulting business as well called Energize. um, And I do some consulting work and I I do help racetracks. Um, But if somebody called and said, hey, I want to spend 50 minutes or an hour with you and I've got some questions, I don't don't charge for that. But if somebody wanted to engage my services, but I, yeah, I take calls all the time, and and I think it is our responsibility um, to help our fellow racetrack owners because with each so Halloween Classic, my record is fifteen hundred and twenty three cars legitimately at the Halloween Classic, and I get in the old days I would get five hundred cars from Michigan. I would get 800 cars from Ohio. I would get, I used to track where that 1,523 cars came from. Over the years, I have seen state attendance drop. And interestingly enough, as tracks closed, so too did the support uh, for the Halloween Classic. So when I have a big event, or when Maple has a big event, or when Atco has a big event. We have our core that we rely on, but we have racers who travel from other racetracks. So when those racetracks struggle, or when those racetracks close, I feel it at my, in my, at my gate. 
I feel it at the Halloween Classic, the 40 Grand Nationals, the No Box Bonanza. Um, when I have a Ford event or a Chevy event or a Mopar event or a Pontiac event, um, we're all in this together. And I am more than willing to help uh, any way I can to help get this. We've got to do better. We must do better. Get a hold of you. Or what's your, what's, how do we find your consulting company? Um, well, um, I can, can I share my cell number? Is that okay? Yep, absolutely. Or is, that, yep. is that a shameless plug? <laughs> no, I'm, I, I'm all about helping. That's kind of the key yeah. of this podcast is to get out there and you're only helping racers, but yet by helping track owners, it's, it's all a community and we work together. If you want to yeah, share it to your Facebook or share it on our, you, know, you, you can, can, you it, can you say can. it right now if you want. Sure. Um, the best way to reach me is my cell number. Uh, it's my personal cell. Uh, it's 419-577-5210. And that is the most expedient way. Uh, call me, text me, and I will uh, return the text or call uh, usually within 24 hours. Awesome. Well, it's been a, it's been a doozy. I've, uh, I'm really impressed. It sounds like you just got an amazing facility there. Now I understand why it's, I wanted to go there just for the ice cream, but it sounds like there's a lot more there to offer. <laughs> well, the we ice never even got to good. that. We never even got to yeah. the fact that you have the dollar for a pound of ice cream. Well, real, real quick story. So my father, uh, when he would, my father was a workaholic. Uh, he would come home late. I was a little kid. I would be sound asleep in bed. He would wake me up. He would take a serrated knife, take a half gallon of ice cream, cut it in two. He would have half. I would watch, I would eat half and we would watch whatever was on TV, usually dark shadows. If you remember that crazy, scary show, black and white show about a, some guy who turned into a bat and it's why for years I in the dead of summer in a house with no air conditioning, I would sleep with the windows closed <laughs> because I was terrified that this bat would fly in my window and suck my blood or something. But um, so I, we have within our family, we have a side of the family that are chocolatiers. We have a side of the family, uh, the Dager family that make velvet ice cream. So they're ice cream makers. Uh, my father came up with this idea of a pound of ice cream for a dollar um, and it just stuck and we started doing it. And, uh, you know, you pay 55 or $60 to buy a ticket to get into the national event in top fuels on the track. And you've got a hundred people in line waiting for a pound of hand dipped ice cream. I, I don't get it, but um, it's great ice cream. It, 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 it's something we've become known for. Um, and, uh, I have people who come in on Wednesday night on our amateur night and buy a ticket just to get a pound of ice cream. Um, so it, 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 it grew beyond what any of us could have imagined. Uh, but it's a pretty cool deal. And, and, you know, when do you ever see an unhappy person eating ice cream? Right. So <laughs> if you're eating ice cream, you're happy. Never. Maybe right. you should hand out ice cream at the ticket booth. So when you get your loser slip. It comes with the ice cream cone. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll think about that. I'll tell you what. When I was there, the last I ran your national event in 2011 and 2012, and I don't know if anybody remembers 2012. It must have averaged 105 degrees that whole weekend, and I must have hit that ice cream booth up. I don't know, especially after I lost. I must have hit that thing up 10 times and came home about – Heat index. 
heat index reached 115. Our zip code was the hottest zip code in Ohio on that weekend in 2012. I remember it well. Oh, my, my car, I thought I was dragging an anchor down the track. but uh, You were because all the ice cream you ate, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Ford. You can't eat ice cream and drive a Ford. Yeah, I know, right? Well, Mr. Bader, we really appreciate you spending all this time with us. We know that you 15 minutes to a half an hour, and then you start billing. So we don't want to – Brian doesn't want to get a big bill on the mail from you. <laughs> so we, uh, we thank you for all your time today for joining us. Uh, we want to remind our listeners – ClassRacingToday.com uh, is our website. Give us a like, give us a share, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, on Facebook. Uh, thanks for interacting with us. And uh, if you would like, you know, your product on our podcast, if you want to sponsor us, we are looking, you know, to get a couple great things going for next year and moving forward this year. Um, just hit us up, ClassRacingToday at gmail.com. Uh, we are also on Instagram at Class Racing Today. All right. Thank you very much. Enjoy your holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, everybody. <laughs>